Welcome to the Carbon Stations podcast, where we speak to some of the leading figures in the emerging carbon industry. Our guest today is Matthew Paver, CEO of Carbon Responsible, one of the oldest carbon accounting and management companies uh, founded back in 2012. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. And as you may know, in addition to corporate matters, this podcast focuses on uh, individuals uh, that shape the carbon industry, which you no doubt are. So with that said, I'd love it if you could share with us a little of what you used to do before Carbon Responsible. Uh, from your LinkedIn profile, I spied that you, uh, you're you a classical musician. And uh, I also know that you founded a company that worked on reducing CO2 emissions in the fashion industry with, uh, with the help of seaweed, which is in and of itself very fascinating. So please uh, do tell us uh, how all of this comes together. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to do so. And first off, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be on Carbonizations and really happy to be talking to you. Um, so yeah, I, I would say starting at a high level, my career um, has always, I've been trying to intentionally orient towards sustainability from the beginning. Um, it's always been something that one, I cared about, but two, I was convinced at a young age that the commercial space could help solve the challenges presented by climate change through innovation and new technologies and more efficient ways of doing things. So with that, um, I started my career originally in consulting. So I worked first at Accenture in New York, helping you know, large pharma clients and hospitality clients do what Accenture does, which is integrate really large technology projects. And while that was great generalist training, I knew it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so my subsequent job after that was to work at a nonprofit in the States that helped design corporate social responsibility programs. So it was a similar um, role and that it was consultative, uh, but uh, specifically geared towards helping companies who had very little idea about what they wanted to do, fledge new programs. Um, and that was a really great position, really sort of was the bridge between the corporate sector that I grew up in to the, um, let's say, uh, sustainability sector, right, that I now find myself in. Um, coming on now to the more recent part of my career and particularly what you touched upon in terms of um, the seaweed startup that I had. I moved to the UK in 2019 to do a graduate degree in climate change management, um, really with the intent of one, um, becoming more deliberate about where within sustainability I wanted to sit and carbon reduction and removal being the bit that I found the most interesting. Um, and two, there were not many programs in the States that had um, a specific business lens on climate change. Um, there's obviously environmental uh, stewardship programs and environmental resource management programs in the States at the graduate university level, but not um, from a business context. Um, so the UK was a bit leading in that area and that's why I chose the program that I did. Uh, as an outcome of that program, I obviously learned a lot about a lot of different things and the, the ways that really smart people, smarter than me are, trying to, to tackle the climate crisis through innovation. One of which was an article I had read by a um, academic from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory associated with the University of Exeter, a guy named Mike Allen, about the valorization of different um, species of seaweeds. Uh, so seaweed is like any other biomass or food that we eat, its constituent molecules are fats, carbs, proteins, or uh, fatty acids, polysaccharides, and um, amino acids, which is what proteins are made out of. Uh, and all of those are various types of long chain molecules that have particular material properties. Um, and 
when I began to look into seaweed, um, I was really struck by the use cases for the polysaccharides or the really, really long chain polymer molecules, which if you know anything about the chemicals world, right? Polymers are the holy grail. They're sort of the way that we take hydrocarbons or any other sort of base material and turn it into useful consumer goods. So when we talk about taking oil, right, like from the earth um, and turning that into a plastic cup or um, a polyester yoga pant or whatever, polymer chemistry is the chemistry that allows that process to happen and allows our economy to create usable goods besides combustion in like a jet engine, right? With hydrocarbon based things. Um, so I had this idea because I think generally as all, you know, nascent ideas happen, I was a bit frustrated by what I saw within the fashion and apparel industry. If you scratch, you know, a level underneath the sustainability claims of most brands, I think what you'll find is that there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of good actually happening in terms of how are um, large brands really changing the materials that they use and how are they making their processes more uh, sustainable and friendly. And so I wanted to create a completely novel material that was almost entirely based out of biomass. When you see today, if you go shop, I don't know, at a big box retail store and you see a um, shirt that's marketed as bamboo fiber, right, which we see a lot of. What that really is is 95% cotton blend with 5% chopped fibers from some biomass that is the trendy biomass of the year, right? And so that allows marketers to say, oh, buy this bamboo shirt. It's sustainable because it's made out of bamboo. Cliff notes, it's actually made out of cotton, which, you know, is cotton's a natural fiber as well. So that's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also not truthful. Um, so... I really started to focus on this idea that, okay, what if we just completely blank slated fabrics, completely blank slated fibers and materials and use seaweed as a base product? Because the advantages of using seaweed are the following. One, it uses no fresh water to grow, right? It grows in the ocean and we need fresh water to grow our food, to do a lot of other things for us to drink, to shower with, to do whatever. Um, it requires no arable land, so it doesn't take up any of the land that, you know, cotton does or corn does or sorghum or soybeans or whatever or pasture land, right? Um, so great. Again, it's not really having a deleterious impact on, on the ecosystem that we have on land. Um, and three, it grows really, really, really fast. Um, so the way... Uh, aquatic biomass works versus the way terrestrial biomass works is very different actually. So we've had, you know, farmer's almanacs for centuries, right, that say if you plant a seed of corn 97 days after that, you'll be able to harvest an ear of corn and that's pretty um, well established, right, in terms of agriculture. The conditions within water are so much more narrow that that's why we get things called blooms, right? So um, Seaweed um, of various different species wait until water's warm seasonally to the appropriate amount of temperature that are good for their bloom. And then, boom, all of a sudden you have billions of tons of biomass to, to utilize. Um, that means that when we do have seaweed and if we seed it properly in waters and, you know, create a cultivation environment, we're really talking about scale, right, which is what we need um, and an ability to harvest a whole bunch of material, raw material quickly, and then use that to create value added products. Um, so 
it has all these advantages and it has all these unique properties actually as a biomass. I mean, I'm sure you've probably picked up some seaweed on the beach or held it once or twice in your hand. It's slippery and slimy and maybe not the most um, pleasing textured touch, but that texture connotes, right, that it is um, something that has plasticky, right? That's not a technical word, um, plasticky sort of um, properties to it. And so with a minimal amount of treatment, you can get that seaweed into um, commercial use cases that look and behave like plastic, but are the, that are made almost entirely out of seaweed. Um, so for instance, there are companies in the UK and, and globally at this stage, right, that are able to fractionate out parts of the seaweed, um, like the polysaccharides that I talked about earlier, and then turn those into packaging, right? Like there's this company, Notpla, I'm sure you've heard of it, you're a, a reporter in this area, um, that uh, makes these really cool sachets, right, that dissolve in water. So they're, they look like a bit of plastic, like something you would get like a ketchup packet in from a takeaway or something. Um, and I think the coolest use case I saw of those is that they fill them with water. So at marathons, when people are running, they just grab one of the sachets and they put it in their mouth and it dissolves in their mouth and gives them gives the marathon runners water which is really cool um but there are countless other examples of the way that seaweed can be used to to solve those challenges i think getting on now to maybe the more interesting bit besides you know the preamble on the chemistry and whatnot um the reason the company didn't work is that i was trying to slot in a material into existing industrial properties and industrial interoperability in the textiles um ecosystem is it's very rigid right the processes are known and established and garment factories all around the world use the same iso certifications and bobbins of yarns and, and techniques crucially one called melt spinning um, is how you create uh polyester yarns right and so what melt spinning is is it's like a giant candy floss machine um, and it has a rotator in it and it's heated to a really high heat and you feed in a polymer resin which is like a goop right it's like a plasticky goop and in that cylinder that spins really really fast at really high temperatures it threads out that um, plastic at a really thin and fine rate and that's what you use to create um, things like polyester yarn and nylon yarn and any of the other sort of plastic-based yarns. Um, the issue we ran into is that seaweed doesn't really stand up well to those conditions, right? We're talking 140 degrees C, high, high pressure. It just dissolves, basically. And the catch-22 is that the way to solve that is to put additives into the seaweed that move it more and more in the direction of it actually just being a plastic. So you end up recreating the product that you were trying to displace in the first place. Um, there are ways around using melt spinning. It's not the only process to create a yarn, but it is by far the most efficient and the most used. So you can get around it, but you just don't have a commercially viable product at that stage. Um, so that's really the hurdle that I ran into personally in terms of trying to commercialize this. I had a bunch of demand. I you know, had four or five brands that were interested in this. If I could get a prototype, they would invest, all those sorts of things. So it's an idea that people are hungry for. Um, and I do still believe that it's, it's technically possible, um, but with new materials, it's just, it's um, it's a lot harder and a lot longer of a game than software is. And it requires a bigger investment and more patient capital. And VCs aren't really sort of interested in that at this stage. Um, so 
had to had to abandon the idea. Um, although again, I still think it's a good one, um, and I might return to it at some stage. Uh, but uh, crucially, one of the advisors to my business the whole time was the CEO of the current business I'm in, Hugo Kember, who has been in the um, carbon space since 2006. Um, former travel executive. Um, founded Carbon Responsible in 2012. And I think he could, you know, sort of rightly see the writing on the wall with my company as he was an advisor. And he said, why don't you come help me out for a little bit to, to fledge Carbon Responsible? Because um, circa 2021, the company repivoted towards, um, or just pivoted, repivoted is redundant, sorry. Um, correcting myself grammar-wise on the fly. Um, pivoted towards the compliance and regulatory landscape because there was a whole bunch of new legislation in the UK and the EU that were requiring companies that had never reported their carbon before to do so. Um, so I joined him in 2022 to do that and have been doing it ever since. And, and you know, um, he had a better idea than me. The company's doing really well, right? And the amount of companies, right, that do have to report is growing. The ambition of those companies that have reported previously is growing. Um, and so the market is 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 an interesting space, right? Um, and it comes with a whole host of challenges and, and interesting clients. But on the whole, we're solving um, good problems, which is how do businesses, um, one, really understand at a deep, auditable, traceable level emissions associated with their operations? And two, what can they tangibly do to reduce those emissions, right? And I think that's an important distinction because what we're really focused on is deep, deep quality reporting and actionable insights, which in our marketplace, there's a lot of really pretty SaaS dashboard solutions where you put in some numbers, you get out a report, and you've ticked a box and you've moved on, but you're not actually really investigating your operations. And no one is checking that you've treated those numbers with proper accounting standards, or have they helped you establish reduction targets that are relevant to your company? So I think the market has moved from national level, top down, I'm Rishi Sunak at COP28, and I'm saying that the UK will be net zero by 2030, sort of ethos to bottom up approaches, which are, okay, companies now, there's a legal requirement to actually do something. Do you have the tools needed? Do you have the insights available to you to actually make the corporate investment to in order to align with the law? Wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. No, it was uh, fascinating actually to learn more about the the whole seaweed business and your connection to Carbon Responsible from from that actually. And since Carbon Responsible is one of the oldest companies in this area, you've no doubt seen a lot of new companies emerge, uh, especially in the last couple of years that are also doing carbon accounting. What would you say in your own words is, uh, what do you do differently from them? Like what is Carbon Responsible's advantage? Yeah, I think generally it boils down to an ethos of partnership, right? We take really, really seriously the idea that um, partnering with our clients and helping them get um, something useful out of working with us is important, right? I meet a lot of clients and prospects who are frustrated by their experience with other carbon accounting providers because they can't find anyone on the end of the phone, um, they've been sort of led astray by their numbers or the carbon accounting company that they were using, you know, um, tried to sell them a bunch of offsets out the back end. We don't do any of that. All we do is the measurement bit and it comes with some expert advisory. So that's part and parcel of the whole package. So what that means is that 
for a lot of our competitors, what happens is you sign up, you pay a monthly subscription fee, you get access to a dashboard, you upload some data. Once you think you have a complete set of data and you've gone through the checklist, yada, 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 you click generate report, you get a PDF. Hey ho, there's your emissions report. And that's really, you know, 96% of the interaction that you have with that service provider. With us, we generate reporting, but we have a backend database. So what happens is, is you sign up for us. We have a kickoff call with you. We walk you through where typically good data sits within an organization like yours, because again, we've done this for over a decade and we're really good at it. And we're able to walk you through that and get you through that part of the process, which can be generally pretty painful for organizations, um, a lot faster and with a lot less headaches because we're able to help you identify what you have and what you don't have. Um, you provide us that data through our platform, through our portal platform, we investigate it, we make sure that it's you know complete, accurate, traceable, all sorts of the things that we would want you to have when you, you know end our services. And then once we're comfortable with it, we'll say, okay, it's time to generate the report and we will generate our report for you and we'll provide it to you. And then we always have a workshop after we generate the report with our existing clients where we say, this is what your data looks like. This is how it differed year over year. If you're you know, a repeat client or, or you have some level of reporting from previous time periods, this is what you can do better next year. These are the things we would recommend. Um, and all of that, all of those recommendations are either not with us or they're to say, you know, increase your reporting in these areas. Think about, you know, you did 25 suppliers this year, do you wanna do 60 next year? You didn't do business travel this year, you should consider doing it next year. Those sorts of things that begin to push a client slowly to a level of maturity where they're actually at the forefront of the, the field. I think that journey of the maturity curve is what's unique about us and really quite a differentiator because a lot of companies don't do that, right? You come to them at whatever level of maturity you have internally, you get your report and it's incumbent upon you to figure it out. And that's tough, man, right? Carbon is a politically charged, difficult, constantly evolving landscape. So it's really nice, I think, for companies to have some specialist expertise that sits behind the reporting to help them figure out where they wanna go. And look, some people might not wanna go anywhere. That's completely their prerogative. But a lot of people that I talk to, even if they're just getting started on the journey, where they really wanna end up is they wanna be able to set reduction targets and they wanna be able to track over time that they're moving the needle on their emissions. But getting there with a level of um, traceability and, and um, uh, accuracy really requires high, high quality reporting. Uh, right, um, we published an interview with you uh, earlier this year and to those listening, there will be a link for that in the description. So go ahead and check it out. But in the interview, I know you mentioned uh, some of your bigger clients, like the Arsenal Football Club. Others I know include Soho House Hotels and Pure Gym. Can you describe perhaps a little bit like on their example, like what working with major clients like of that scale, what, what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, it's it's complex project work. Those are really big organizations. Um, but the maturity journey, the maturity curve journey that I've described applies to all of them, right? They all came to us at some point a number of years ago, and I'm not gonna get into the specifics of their their work because I feel like they would probably want me to like check with them before I just verbally talked about it, but I can talk generally about the experience that they all had, which is in general, those large organizations, it's one, it's even more of a headache. It gets super complex when we're talking about supply chains for multi-site organizations. That's sort of like, the the amount of complexity just ratchets up exponentially when you go into to those sorts of places and um what we've 
what we've really tried to do is, is take it slow. So for most of those people, the first engagement that we did with them was to say, okay, let's get you at a minimum for this year, regulatorily compliant. You will get emissions reporting from us that allows you to, you know, put supplements in your director's report, report to the UK authority, your emissions as required by law. And that, um, all of that data will be handed back to you at the end so that if there are any auditors that come asking you questions about your reporting, you're able to evidence all of it instantly. Um, and two, let us help you sort of craft an ongoing strategy over the back of that about how we can now move you further up and further afield. And I'm happy to report with all of those organizations, the amount of reporting that we do for them or the sort of scope of reporting, right, has increased year over year. So we're getting to things with Arsenal like investigating fan travel and what sort of impacts fan travel to Emirates stadiums has on their emissions profile, working with the suppliers of their merchandising and goods and seeing how that and purchasing, you know, an Arsenal um, jersey from the, the, the store, what impact that sort of thing has on their overall emissions. Um, similarly with, you know, Soho House, there's constantly changing numbers of Soho House houses and they're a growing company. So how do we develop metrics and reportings for an organization like that, that is intensity based so that they're able to grow while also evidencing over time that on a per unit basis, they're getting more sustainable and they're able to drive reductions across their operations. So it might be rising in absolute terms, but in relative terms, it's actually falling. So that's a good story to tell. So it's really about working collaboratively with large clients like that about what is, again, the story you want coming out of your emissions report, because it's different for different folks, right? For consumer brands, they want to be able to tell a story about how they're actually doing good, how they can evidence change over time, how they've, you know, taken quite seriously their role as an organization in terms of sustainability could be a different story for, for instance, private equity companies that we work with that really actually are just trying to evidence that there's good governance around sustainability within the assets that they hold so that when time comes for those assets to exit their portfolio, they're able to command, you know, a bit of a higher value and they're able to evidence to whoever's buying that asset that actually this is a sound investment because management in this company is reporting on X, Y, and Z. They've done so for two years and they're able to evidence that, you know, they're good stewards of their community and you're not buying something that's, you know, shoddy, for instance. So it's all about calibrating, right? And it's all about, for us as an organization, being sensitive to what our clients' needs are, right? And that only comes with that human aspect. Right. Thank you. Since uh, since we're talking about emissions and supply chain emissions, uh, I'd also like to ask you about scope for emissions uh, or avoided emissions, since these are mentioned in the GHG protocol and they are identified as, as emissions reductions. Does Carbon Responsible take these into account at all? And if so, could you tell us a little bit more what that looks like? We don't really touch scope for at the moment, right? One, because it's not a regulatory compliance need. And two, the dust hasn't quite settled on the conversation yet. So I'd be reluctant to sort of say what carbon responsible's position is. We'll take a position on it at some point, but we don't have an established one. And it's not something we recommend our clients look very deeply into at this stage. The point about what we do really is if you are being transparent about your emissions in the public sphere, if you publish that data and you are transparent about, you know, if you had set targets and you have to walk them back, or if you've set targets and, you know, you had originally said they were achievable in 2030, but actually you're thinking 2035 and you have a plan, you're being transparent, 
That, I believe, is probably the gold standard in terms of how companies can behave in terms of reduction and avoiding emissions, right? I don't think there are unsympathetic ears on the marketplace towards companies who are having challenges on their sustainability journey. Where I think people get rightfully dinged is when something doesn't go wrong, something doesn't go right in their reporting or they're missing a target, but they're trying to cover it up, right? The cover-up is always worse than the crime. So the counsel we always provide for organizations, and it actually happens all the time, where they come to us and they say, we've worked with X ESG consultancy for five years. We set these, you know, net zero by 2030 targets, and we don't know how we're going to get there. And it's, you know, the clock is ticking. Our advice is always to say, figure out what your baseline is, truly figure it out. And then we can have a conversation about how we talk about what is actually achievable for you. And you actually see this all the time in the marketplace. I think, um, who was it? Was it Microsoft or Tesco recently walked back, or no, it was Crocs. Crocs walked back their sustainability claims by like five years or something like that because they went on this exact journey. They had set a target. It was unachievable. They actually did some measurement. And then the reality became clear that they weren't going to hit it in a certain time frame. So they had to you know, go to the public and say, this is what's actually achievable for us. That is more of the behavior that we want. I think in an era of greenwashing and green hushing, the more companies that can just be honest about what is achievable for them and evidence with good data and measurement that they are actually trying, people will um, fall behind them and say, okay, that's, that's credible, actually. You're not one of the people who sits over here and is trying to, you know, tell me that they're going to be net zero by 2030 and they have absolutely no data to back that up, right? It's all about um, being transparent. On the note of uh, greenwashing and being transparent, what's your opinion on carbon credits? <laughs> ah, the question, the question of the hour. I mean, look, one of the, the hallmarks of carbon responsible is that we've never brokered offsets and we've never sold them to our clients. I think we need a thousand solutions, not one, to meet the climate crisis. And I think there are some genuinely really good um, offsetting projects out there. And the idea of deploying useful capital in the West to, to project globe that has a net positive benefit on the planet is a noble one. But what happened was that demand far outstripped supply and in a rush to sort of balance those things, we've seen a lot of things come to market that don't have the um, verification that is needed in order to understand the benefit of those projects. And additionally, I mean, I've always thought that the idea of trying to sell a carbon credit for an afforestation project for forest that hasn't grown is a bit putting the cart before the horse, right? If you're going to sell a carbon credit, it should be something that's already been established or is reducing and you can actually evidence that the carbon is coming down on some certain time frame over some certain years in order to sell that. So I, I think that the market just got ahead of itself, and I, I, I don't blame that, right? This is a bit of the Wild West. There's not a lot of regulation when it comes to carbon credits, and people could make money. So we ended up in a situation that is not surprising. But I think the uh, recalibration around it <clears throat> is appropriate, and I think that um, – you'll see higher quality things and they'll just cost more and that will be the reality. I mean, that's why we have such a focus, I think, these days on CDR as opposed to offsetting, which is, okay, if you're going to do carbon dioxide removal, you have to actually evidence that you've removed it before you can, you know, get the, get your, get your invoice paid. And I think that's a much more um, helpful um, 
way to sort of incentivize carbon removal um, because it's verifiable. And, uh, you know, will that market behave the same way? Potentially, but I think hopefully companies have learned their lesson um, and, and I don't think we'll see the same sort of um, muddying of the waters as we did in the offset world over the past 24 months. Yeah, hope, hopefully. Given the growing interest in and demand for carbon accounting and, and carbon management, I imagine that you must have your work cut out for you already. But even so, I'd like to ask what the company's plans for the future are. Uh, if you're perhaps looking to take on new clients, if there are expansion plans in the pipeline, what can you share about Carbon Responsible's next steps? Yeah, definitely. So look, we're growing, right? The company was four people last year. We're 12 this year. We're going to hire some some new people in, in before this side of Christmas as well. Um, and yeah, look, we, we're obviously very happy to continue to take on new clients um, and um, our business is expanding. And I think that'll only hold true in the future as certain things like CSRD um, in the EU causes more companies to have to take this seriously. We can do the work that we do anywhere in the world really where there are good conversion factors. Um, and additionally, as I said earlier, we do sit on the audit end of the spectrum, which means not only do we provide emissions reporting for companies, but companies that already have that reporting, we provide limited assurance on that, which is one of the CSRD um, requirements is that you have to get limited assurance on your emissions reporting. So yeah, the, the, the plan for the company is to just keep focused on where we sit in the value chain for our organizations, keep focused on being genuine partners to our clients and bring on new clients as and when they you know come to us. Thank you, Matt. This was a very insightful conversation. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing so much about uh, what you do. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It was, it was, it was so fun to, to get to chat. I always love talking about my sales. <laughs> it was fun to listen to. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Carbon Stations podcast and would like to hear more conversations like this, please be sure to subscribe. We really appreciate the support.